Well, Merry Christmas again. It's been said many times, but it is appropriate. It is indeed a merry day. Glad you're here. You know that many are traveling at a time like this to be with family, so we are particularly thankful that you're able to be here and worship with us. I want to uh, thank God for each of you this morning. I want to also ask you now to open your Bibles to Matthew 1, Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew 1. We'll be looking at pay, uh, verses 18 to 21. If you're using that Red Pew Bible, that's page 959. Matthew 1, 18 to 21, page 959. I'll remind you that here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. It is this book alone that is able to guide our lives and to do so without any error. And so we must know this book. Matthew 1, verses 18 to 21. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Spirit of God, just as you came upon Mary and conceived within her the baby Jesus, so we ask that you'd come upon us and conceive within us new life. Conceive within us. Let us conceive within ourselves the glorious reasons for this birth, for this child, for Christmas. And more than just merely conceiving of those reasons, let us believe them and live in light of their truth. We pray this in the name of that baby. Amen. So on the morning of June 24th, 1997, June 24th, 1997, that was my 30th birthday. I woke that morning to find the rarest of occurrences. Becky was awake before me. But she didn't wish me a happy birthday. She didn't even say good morning. Instead, she kind of did a half roll toward me, kind of groaned, we're going to the hospital. You see, she was nine months pregnant, and our third child was born a few hours later. Now, many people would prefer not to have to share a birthday. Me, I love it. You see, it guaranteed that my mother, my grandmother, my mother-in-law, my wife, and at least one of my children would never forget my birthday. Grandchildren, they're remembered. Sons-in-law, sons, fathers, not so much. So whether or not they ever celebrated my birthday, they would at least remember it. The truth is, most of us have birthdays that pass with little or no fanfare. And there's certainly no public fanfare for our birthdays. But don't feel too badly about that. I did a little interesting research on this topic. It turns out, very few birthdays are noted. 
Back in 2013, Time Magazine did an interesting little, and I won't get into all the details of it, it is a fascinating little thing. They basically tried to rank, and they tried to do so as objectively as possible, they tried to rank the 100 most influential people in all of human history that have ever lived. These are big-time names, names like Alexander the Great, Aristotle, Michelangelo. And you know what was interesting on that list? None of their birthdays are noted, commemorated, or remembered. In fact, number six on their list, George Washington, you may have heard of him. We give school children a day off to commemorate his birthday. I guarantee you, if you ask those kids, why do you have the third Monday of February off? They're going to shrug and go, I don't know, midwinter break. They have no idea that it's Washington's birthday that we're celebrating. And even if they know it, I'd bet the farm they don't commemorate it or honor it in any way. Of that list of the 100 most influential people who have ever lived, none of their birthdays are noted, except for one. It's Christmas that is still noted. Christmas is unique among all the birthdays that have ever been. For we pay attention to it. We commemorate it. We honor it. We celebrate it. In fact, about, two th- about a third of the world's population does so today with us. Why? Why among all the birthdays is this one to be celebrated? By the way, in case you're curious, Time Magazine put Jesus number one on the list of the most influential people in history. Why do we celebrate his birthday? Why is it something to be honored and remembered? Well, in particular, it's because of the nature of his birth. Jesus' birth was quite literally unique in human history. While the births of other people brought about those who would change the course of history, the birth of Jesus brought about a new type of humanity. Not just a new path in humanity, but a new humanity. He changed what it meant to be human. You see, at Christmas, we celebrate the God-man. The God-man. We celebrate the birth of the one who was and still is one person with two natures. You see, Jesus of Nazareth was both God and man. And at Christmas, we celebrate what is often called the incarnation. God the Son clothing himself with humanity. So, real quickly, before we go any further, let me clear a couple things up. First of all, that word incarnation is an important word, but it's not a word we use very often. It's kind of a fancy word. It literally means enfleshment, to take on flesh to take on a body. So the incarnation just means that God the Son was given a body. He took on a human uh, nature. I point that out because we have sung a carol that uh, uh, celebrated the incarnate deity, and we have read a, a confession, a creed, that talked about his being incarnate of the Virgin Mary. It's an important word. God the Son became incarnate. He took on a human body. Secondly, by way of explanation, let me tell you what we're not going to cover in this sermon. We're not going to get into the what and how 
of the incarnation. That is incredibly complex and nuanced. And the church has been wrestling with it for hundreds and hundreds of years. We're not going to take up the question of what or how. But as the sermon title suggests, we are going to look at the why. Why did God the Son become one of us? Why did he take on flesh? Why was he incarnate? A little aside, and you can follow up with me afterwards, I tell you about the difficulties of the what and how. Even my sermon title has got some serious problems. So if you want to know more about it, we can talk afterwards. So let's take a look at the reasons for the incarnation, the reasons for Christmas. I struggled, by the way, whether or not to put that S on the word reason, because the truth is these will all coalesce into one big overarching reason. Think of it either way. So number one, here it is. The number one, a number one reason for God becoming one of us is that God wanted us to truly know him. God wanted us to truly know him. Imagine the difference between reading about a favorite celebrity and actually meeting her. Taylor Swift is setting records for, well, making records. Um, she is one of the most talked about personalities in the world today. She is a once in a generation singer songwriter and she is all over the media, both the more traditional media and social media. She dominates it. Now, you can learn a lot about her through those media. But imagine that you actually got to meet her. Maybe you don't get to meet her personally, but what if you got to meet somebody who spent a lot of time with her? What if you got to meet one of Taylor Swift's closest friends? A friend who hung out with her for three years, who was backstage with her at her concerts, who was at her home for meals, who went shopping with her, who knew which boys she liked and which boys she didn't like, who knew all the... Imagine getting to meet that person. You'd learn a lot more about Miss Swift than you ever would from the media. Those are our gospel accounts. They are... Two men, Matthew and John, who were close personal friends of Jesus and spent three years doing everything with him, and they give us the record of his life. Another man, Mark, who knew Jesus personally and then was good friends with Peter, and they give, he gives us his account. The fourth, Luke, tells us he did a lot of research with those who knew Jesus. Just like meeting Taylor Swift's close friend would give you insight into her that you'd never get from the media, so it is with Jesus. He came to earth so that we could know God better. Now you're saying to yourself, wait a second here, you just said he took on a human nature. What we know in Jesus is the humanity, not the deity. That's an excellent point, but let me address it. Let me use the scriptures to address it. In Hebrews 1.3, we're told this, that the God-man was, and I quote, the exact representation of God. Yes, it was this human form that those disciples interacted with, but the scriptures tell us it was the exact representation of God. Colossians 1 says it this way, that Jesus was the image 
of the invisible God. He made visible that which was invisible. I think perhaps most of all, we need to look at Jesus' own comments on this subject. You know, over Thanksgiving, we had several of you over to our home, a lovely time. Thanks for coming. It was a real lot of fun. You got, several of you got to meet our oldest, Joshua. And more than one of you made a comment. Oh my goodness, he's a mini Scott. He talks like you. He acts like you. He sounds like you. Well, of course, that's the way of this world. Sons are like their fathers. And the closer the relationship, the closer the likeness. So while we may have pity on Joshua, that gives us insight into Jesus. Jesus knew his time on earth was winding down, and he was preparing his disciples for his departure. He was giving them some instruction. And in the midst of that instruction, one of the disciples, Philip, speaks up. He interrupts. And it seems almost like Philip is trying to say, hey, Jesus, I can save us all some time. You're worried about what's going to happen to us after you're gone. We can cut through the chase. And he says to Jesus this, just show us the Father. If we see the Father, we'll be good to go. If we catch a glimpse of deity, we'll be set for life. And Jesus' response is sad. In John 14, 9, we read this. Jesus said to him, to Philip, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus expected the twelve to know God because they knew him. One reason for the incarnation, for God becoming one of us, is so God could make himself known to us. And anyone who has, who knows Jesus knows God. And we have the firsthand eyewitness testimony of four who were behind the scenes with him, who were close to him. And just like Miss Swift's friend would give you uh, uh, an extra measure of insight, so the Gospels do the same. They reveal to us Jesus, and he says in doing so, they reveal to us God. One reason for Christmas is so that we would know God better. A second reason, one of the things we learn about God, God became one of us because he wanted to live among us. God became one of us because he wanted to live among us. How did the uh, opening Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels, sing? By the way, just in case you're ever in the midst of a discussion about the best Christmas carol, that is the best Christmas carol. Okay, there we go. We can put that to rest. Um, Pleased as man with men to dwell. Well said, Mr. Wesley. God was pleased to dwell as a man among us humans. He wanted to live with us. But you say, wait a second, we can't take the word of a hymnist. That's not scripture. Well, let me point out what is. As you know, we've been going through the book of Genesis. 
And Genesis opens up with a creation account. And then in chapter 3, what do we find? We find Adam and Eve in the garden that God has prepared for them. And what do we find? We find God walking in the garden in the cool of the day to be with them, to fellowship with them. He wanted to be with them. And how does the scripture close? It opens with God, with people. It closes the same way. What do we see in Revelation 21? We see God wanting to be among his people. Revelation 21, verses 3 to 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God declared to John in this vision of the book of Revelation that he was going to spend eternity dwelling on earth with us, his people. When I was a a young teen, I loved Lego bricks, and I would make some of the most incredible creations, if I do say so myself. I had a lot of fun building awesome things. And I would put them on my dresser for a week. If they were really special, maybe two weeks. But then I would just break them apart and make something new. God did not make us as a hobby, as a distraction, as something to do. To to be destroyed, to be taken apart and replaced with something better. He's fixing us and this earth so that he can go back to his original plan of dwelling with us. God wants to live with us. And in case we doubted that, there was Jesus. There was the God-man. There was the one who came to this earth and took on human nature so he could live in our midst and become one of us. That's amazing. That's profound. One little aside to that amazing truth. God's desire to live among us affirms the inherent value of being human. No other creature, including the angels that we so admire at Christmas time, no other creature enjoys God's attention in that way. God did not add to himself an angelic nature, or the nature of a dolphin, or of a baby fur seal. God took to himself only a human nature. It's humanity that God wants to dwell with. He loves us, enjoys us, even likes us. God the Son took on a human nature as Jesus of Nazareth because God wanted to dwell with us. Christmas gives us an insight into God. And one of those insights is that he actually wants to live with us. Number three, 
God becoming one of us made him more accessible to us. God becoming one of us made him more accessible to us. We relate better to those more like us. I mean, any church fellowship event, we see this, don't we? All the men are gathered over here talking. All the women are over here talking because they relate better. Black pastor friend of mine was commenting on one of the reasons that American churches are so segregated. I thought this was interesting. He said it's the one time a week, that one morning a week, where he can just go and relax and enjoy his blackness among other people who can relate to him being black. Doesn't have to be on his guard. Doesn't have to think about how to interact with him. The context allowed him to be with those who are most like him. God put on human nature so that he would, that we, he would be more accessible to us. You see, sometimes we make God a mere subject to be studied, an academic activity. There's this checklist of things we need to know about God. God is omnipresent, check. God is omniscient, check. God is triune, check. God is transcendent, etc. Immutable, blah, 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 you know, go on and on with the list. When we do that, we depersonalize God. But God is a person. In fact, God is so much a person that he's three persons. We tend to make the mistake of thinking that personhood is limited to humanity because that's the type of person with whom we interact most often. But in the Bible, the angels have person. They are persons. They have personhood. And God has personhood. We even recognize that there is a little degree of personality in our pets, though they aren't persons. Personhood is not limited to humanity. God is a person. And so that we might understand that and connect to that, he became a human person and took human nature to himself. There's a scene in a John Grisham novel, and sadly I could not remember which of the John Grisham novels it was from, but there's a dramatic climactic scene near the end of the novel when the district attorney is trying to get the jury to connect. And he's trying to, he's inviting the jury to imagine the fear that the victim experienced. And then the pain she experienced. And the terror she went through. And as he's painting this picture, drawing the jury into the life of that victim, he says something shocking. He says, now imagine she was white. You see, this white district attorney, speaking to this white jury, didn't want them to see that victim as one of them, but to empathize and sympathize with that victim as one of us. That's sort of what's going on with the incarnation. We should not perceive law-breaking as something we do against an inanimate, impersonal object. What does it matter if we break the law? Who are we hurting anyway? Me, God is crying out in the incarnation. Me, that's who you're hurting. That's who you're offending. When you walked out on the relationship in the garden, it was me you hurt. God is a person, and he is personable. And our sin is a personal 
offense. You know, sometimes we make the mistake of dehumanizing Jesus, of depersonalizing him. There have been those who have made the argument, they they claim that they're reading between the lines of the gospel accounts, they use non-biblical, extra-biblical sources. There have been those who have said the, the, the blasphemous, untrue, blasphemous statement, that Jesus had a sexual relationship with Mary Magdalene. We should be appalled by that. We should recoil from that. But we should not recoil too far. Do you imagine that Jesus was not attracted to any women? He was fully human. Attraction between men and women is a natural and good part of being human. Jesus sat in band class in Nazareth Middle School and thought the flute player was cute. Now, he did not lust after her. That would have been sin. But he was attracted to women. Why do I point that out? Because then we need to wrestle with this fact. For us, for us and for our salvation, he gave up one of the great joys of being a human being so that he could accomplish the mission for which he came. Do not depersonalize Jesus. Do not dehumanize him. One reason for Christmas was so that we would see God as person, as one like us, as one to whom we could relate. How did Jesus say it to Philip? He didn't say, if you had seen me, you've seen Yahweh. Could have, that would have been accurate, that would have been true. He didn't say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Lord of hosts. That would have been true. He didn't say, you've seen Adonai or Elohim or any of the other great names of God. He said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He made it a personal relationship. He made it a personal connection. little aside, little application point to this. One of the mistakes that the church has made over the centuries, when we fail to see Jesus as human and therefore fail to see God as personal, we begin to do things like pray to the saints. We ask Mary to speak to her son on our behalf. We ask St. Christopher to intervene where we need help. But we have to recognize they are human beings and they are merely human beings. And as such, they are not omniscient. They don't know all things. They can't be in your head and hear your prayers. Nor can they even be in the room where you're praying aloud. Those prayers are falling on deaf ears. But the one who is both God and man is relatable, is accessible, and is still omnipresent and omniscient and can still hear your prayer. And you think, well, wait a second, your pastor, you know, we're a bunch of good Protestants. We don't pray to the saints. 
How often have I heard people stand next to a casket and say, Grandma, would you please say hi to Jesus for me? How sadly backwards. Pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I miss Grandma. Would you tell her? He can hear you. And he lived in this world. He suffered loss. He understands the pain you're going through. I think he'd be happy to go tell your grandma you miss her. And you're looking forward to the reunion someday. Grandma cannot hear you. Jesus can and he cares. And he's been through it. God came so that we might know him better. And one of the things to know about him is that he wanted to dwell with us. Another thing to know about him is that he is a person. He is personable. And we can relate to him. He is accessible. A fourth reason. God becoming one of us brought into existence the only perfect mediator. God becoming one of us brought into existence the only perfect mediator. Estranged parties, parties at odds with each other, parties that have a beef between themselves, often need a mediator to stand in the gap. A mediator is a, as a go-between. Married couples struggling may seek out a mediator to help them reconcile within their marriage. A professional sports figure and his team who cannot come to an agreement on the new salary structure may appeal to an, a mediator to function as a go-between. The, the railroad strike that we were facing a few weeks ago, there was a federal mediator that was appointed to try to work things out between the railroad union and railroad management. Mediators go between parties that can't otherwise get along. And Paul, in that letter to Timothy, from our, our same place in our New Testament reading, just a couple of few verses later, Paul says to Timothy this. He says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. God and man needed a mediator, and it was fitting that it was the God-man. So first, why do we need a mediator? Well, remember, we did wrong. Remember... We sinned. We walked out on that relationship in Eden. When God barred our return to Eden, it was harder on him than it was on us. We were not uncreated, wishing to be created, to have a relationship with God. He existed and wanted a relationship with us. He went to that to create, make that happen. In his love, he ordained that we would have a relationship with him, and we walked out on it. That hurt him. We were estranged from him. So much so that the Bible refers to sinners as the enemies of God. Imagine for a moment that you're invited to dinner at the palatial estate of some very wealthy, influential person. You get there, you show up. You say, I really don't know you all that well. I'm a little surprised by the invitation to dinner. And they say, well, I just wanted to get to know you better. I wanted to have a relationship with you. I wanted to know you, be friends with you. And you're rude throughout dinner. You don't follow the lead of your host and hostess. You interrupt, you cut off, you act boorishly. 
In fact, you actually deface their picture hanging in the foyer of their beautiful home. Would they be right in kicking you out? Would they be justified in banning you from returning to their home? That's what happened in Eden. Now, if that relationship is going to be restored, we need to go between. We need someone to stand in the gap. Who's that going to be? What's the fitting mediator? When I started at the Christian school as the headmaster back in 2005, I'd been on the job literally two days. I'm in my office. A teacher knocks on the door, fourth grade teacher. She comes into my office. She says, oh, I just want to get to know you. I don't know anybody yet in the school. It's summertime. I start in the summer. Don't know anybody. She says, I just wanted to get to know you. And she starts going on gushing about how excited she is that I'm going to be the headmaster there, that I'm there. She's just going on about how great it's going to be. Now, I understood those sentiments because, you know, I thought it was going to be pretty great. I was confused as to why she thought that. She didn't know me at all. Found out the previous headmaster of the school had come out of the business world. He did not understand what teachers go through. He did not understand that she had to deal not with customers, but with parents. He did not understand. If he got a shipment from the vendor of raw materials that were in you know, subpar, he could send it back to the vendor. She could not return students to the home and say, get them ready for fourth grade. She had to deal with the raw materials that came to her. She, he couldn't relate to her, and she was excited that a former teacher was going to be there. You see, that really is one of the hallmarks of a great mediator. Both sides connect. Both sides trust. And in the God-man, in Jesus of Nazareth, we have the one whom God trusts. What does he say at the baptism? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. God trusts this mediator. And of course, part of the message of the accessibility of his personhood, of his taking on human nature, is so that we would trust him. So that we would look at that mediator and recognize he gets us. He's one of us. He lived our life. He's been here. He's gone through what I've gone through. Hebrews 4 says it this way. We do not have a high priest, that is a mediator. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Wait a second there, Pastor. If he's been tempted like me, I know some of the corruption of my own heart. That's not a trustworthy mediator which is why the author goes on to add this. He has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is the perfect, trustworthy go-between. He will represent our interests well, and he will represent God's concerns justly. In the God-man, in Jesus of Nazareth, we have the perfect mediator. There stands in the gap between the Father and us sinners, the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who is the mediator. It's for this reason that the angels declared glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those with whom he is 
pleased. With mediation, there was the hope of peace. God became one of us to make himself known to us. One of the things we know about him is that he desired to live with us. One of the things we learned about him is that he's personable. He took on human flesh so that we would relate to him, that he would be accessible to us. And one of the things we have learned about him is that in Jesus we have this perfect mediator, one who can be the go-between. Number five, God became one of us to save us from our sins. God became one of us to save us from our sins. Of the four Gospels, Mark's, is, Mark's Gospel is the only one that has no account of Christmas. The other three all do. John comes at it a bit more uh, uh, metaphorically, a bit more spiritually, but nevertheless, he addresses Christmas. He uses language like this. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Why? Why did the Word become flesh? Well, John tells us in that very same passage. To as many as received him, to those who believe in, on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus came, John is telling us, Jesus came so that sinners, the enemies of God, could be counted as the children of God. Now it's one thing for enemies, for warring parties, to make up and come to some sort of cold peace. You know, Israel and Egypt back in the 70s. We're not going to war anymore, but we ain't going to be friends either. A cold peace. It's one thing to come to a cold peace. It's another thing to come to a warm peace and rekindle an actual friendship. But it's unheard of that you would take your enemy and make him your child. Adopt them into your family. But John says that's why the word became flesh. The familiar Christmas passage in Luke 2. Praise God for the Charlie Brown Christmas story. So that passage is still in front of the American culture. In Luke 2, 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. What happens? The angel appears to that. Uh, those shepherds. And what does he declare in Luke 2.11? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Salvation is at the center of Christmas. And what did we read in our, our reading today in Matthew? You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. The central message of the incarnation is salvation. So you were invited to that dinner, and you acted badly. You uh, 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 you behaved poorly in the home of those wealthy people. Well, it's history. It's in the past. Fast forward several years. You're in a minor fender bender. You lose your cool. You get a little hostile with the person, the cop. You just had a bad day, and you start to bark at the cop. And the cop finally says, I've had enough. You don't get to disrespect me in this way. I'm citing you and giving you a fine for just, you know, the, the, the behaving badly toward a, an officer of the law. I don't know what the good technical language would be. You go to court and you stand for the judge to walk in. And the moment the judge walks in, you go, oh no. The reason that palatial estate was so palatial, the reason that mansion was so big, the reason they were so wealthy, because it turns out he's the judge. 
great. I'm not getting out of this traffic fine. That's our situation before God. We've offended him over and over and over again. And it turns out he's our judge. So how does Jesus save us from our sins? Imagine this scenario. It's almost unbelievable. If Hollywood were to put this out, we'd all just roll our eyes and go, that's just a terrible storyline. But it's the truth of the gospel of Christmas. You're standing before that judge, and the judge's son comes in to be your attorney, to be your mediator. And this is not an estranged son. This is not a son with whom the judge hasn't spoken in years. This is the beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he says, Dad, it's all good. Let him go. And you could say that. You could say it's all good, but you're not to be believed. you got a bad track record with that judge. But the beloved son says, Dad, it's all good. The fine's been paid. The debt has been canceled. I took care of it before I came in here. Dad, let him go. That's the salvation that's offered. We owed God a debt. You see, God gave us our lives to be in fellowship with him. When we walked out on that fellowship, when we sinned against him, he had every right to take back our lives because that's why they've been given to us. And he says the debt you owe for sin is your very life. And that's the debt Jesus paid. Now, if Jesus was merely human, then it would be a one-to-one relationship. His life for one of ours. But because he is the God-man, because he is both human and divine, his life was of immeasurable value. And do not think for a moment that somehow it was easy for him to face that. Do not think for a moment that this was something, well, you know, he's God, so it was. No, he's fully human. All the fear that you or I would have in front of the lashings he had. All of the pain that you or I would feel he felt. All of the disgrace for being spat upon and mocked he experienced. The person of God the Son, having taken on a human nature, fully experienced experienced all of that. And in the midst of it, it wasn't the father saying, well, let's go easy on him. The price had to be paid. God is just. He does not sweep sin under the rug. The full price was owed and the full price had to be paid. That meant that all of God's just and righteous anger against my sin had to be dumped out on Jesus. It's why that man hanging on the cross, who up until that moment had had an absolutely perfect relationship with God, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why is this happening? Why am I here? Why is this all coming down on me? But the divine nature of that one on the cross does not intervene with a miracle, but endures for the joy set before him. That's you and me. He saw a relationship with you and me as worth suffering the cross. That's almost hard to imagine. I'm not sure I'd walk across the street to be friends with me. He went to death. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because in Christmas, in the incarnation, in the God-man, in the baby Jesus, who was fully human and fully God, we get to know God better. We get to know that he wants to live with us. And we get to know that he wants to be accessible to us. We get to know that he's personable and that our sins offend him in a personal way. We get to know that because he's both God and man, he is a perfect mediator. And we get to know that all of this was so that we might be saved from our sins. That is the reason for Christmas. Let's pray. Father, it's an amazing thing that you would even ask that of the Son. That you would even propose the idea that salvation be accomplished in this way. But you sent him here because you love us. Son, we cannot believe that you came willingly and that you stayed the course and that as your newfound human nature suffered and agonized, you let it happen and saw it through. And Spirit, we are so thankful that you have made this known to us, that you've applied this truth to our lives, that you have called us to be joint heirs with the Son, to be brothers and sisters in the household of God, to be called children of God. We who were once enemies, now adopted as children. And in the midst of all of the joy of our families, in the midst of all of the fun of gifts, in the midst of all of the singing of carols and all of the baking of cookies and just all of the human pleasure and joy that is a part of this season, let us not lose sight of the amazing truths behind the birth of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.